When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And right now, Thomas Hurts is an open book for Ray Leonard. Backs up against the ropes. This is one of the most unusual calls by a referee in the history of the sport. The first loss. A tremendous victory. Leonard fighting off the ropes. It happened. It happened. Never cut by Douglas. Down goes Tyson. Hooks in. Right hand shot. Excellent. Knocks out by Tyson. Welcome once again, fight fans, to another episode of Legendary Nights, brought to you by BTR Boxing Podcast. This episode is all about the rumble in the jungle. George Foreman versus Muhammad Ali for the World Heavyweight Championships in Zaire in 1974. One of the greatest nights in boxing history, one of the most memorable build-ups in boxing history, and we're so glad to be covering this episode before we do it, and before we get into the episode, of course, go and check us out on social media at Legend Night Pod on Twitter, and the Facebook page is BTR Boxing Podcast. If you've not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so by checking us out on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or any available podcasting app out there. Give us a search, Legendary Nights, you will find this particular podcast. And if you are an Apple Podcast user, please don't forget to leave us a rating and leave us a review. It really, really helps us and we can't stress enough how pertinent it is for us and this podcast. So without further ado, this is the tale of George Foreman versus Muhammad Ali. This is the Rumble in the Jungle. This is the Rumble in the Jungle, a legendary night that we've both been looking very much forward to covering. It's one of the greatest fights of all time, one of the most shocking endings in a fight, and one of the greatest build-ups as well, so much so that it had its own film as well. So, Johnston, a fight that I know we've been wanting to cover for a while, a fight that is so historical for various reasons, and it gives us one of the most spectacular endings to to a boxing match in, in history. It really did. We're all pretty much Muhammad Ali fans. I think we all are. And, and, and you know, anything with Muhammad Ali is always great to watch back. And, then, you know, I'm sure anyone that's involved in boxing or just enjoys to watch boxing, I'm sure they've probably seen the Rumble in the Jungle. And, and funny enough, it was originally called, it was supposed to be billed as from the slave ship to the championship. And it was actually... <laughs> Someone else that decided, no, 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 that's not a great name, the Rumble in the Jungle. And I think, you know what, I'm so glad they changed that because that would not have gone down well at all. But yeah, <laughs> one of my favourites, mate. We're going to start off in chronological order. We're going to look at the four years from 1970 to 1974 leading up to this particular fight, intertwined with both George Foreman and Muhammad Ali's careers and, and how they progressed 
going into the Rumble in the Jungle. So, starting with 1970 then, we're talking about Muhammad Ali first and foremost. We're talking about his return to the ring from exile. Obviously, it's well documented about him not wanting to fight in the Vietnam War. So, instead, he was stripped of his license, sent into exile, didn't fight, did loads of publicity things across the couple of years that he was out, and then decided once he got his license back, he wanted to get straight back in the ring and get back to trying to become the heavyweight champion of the world. Yes, you know, at the time, obviously, Joe Frazier was, was the champion, wasn't he? Picked up both titles, the WBA and the WBC. So, although Ali was in exile, people still considered him to be a world champion. So, so Ali, in 1970, he made his eagerly anticipated return to the ring in October 26th against the former world title challenger and one of the most popular fighters in the sport at the time, which was Jerry Quarry. Uh, the fight was hyped up, as to be expected, but it was a bit of an anti-climax because it was actually stopped in the third round due to Quarry picking up a bad cut. So Ali may have been victorious in his return, but the one thing you do notice in the fight is he looked pretty exhausted, which is understandable considering the long layoff he had. So in the meantime, George Foreman, he'd amassed a professional record of 22 wins with no losses and 90 knockouts. He was a thunderous puncher. He was a guy that when you watch back through them early fights, you think to yourself, whatever he hits, he destroys. That was simply George Foreman. So his most recent and first significant victory of his career was the third round knockout, which came two months before Ali's return. And that was against the tough and durable George Chavalo at Madison Square Garden. Now, this was the same Chavalo that gave Ali one of his toughest fights before he went into exile. Yes, he did. And then Chavalo was no mug. And I think he never been stopped previously. And then obviously, Foreman, as you said, he was an absolute thunderous puncher and and he got rid of Chivalo. and So Ali, obviously his second fight would come against a gentleman that he selected himself apparently, which is Oscar Bonavino. And Oscar Bonavino is probably one of the best heavyweights to ever win a world title. That's just our opinion, but he was definitely an excellent heavyweight being around at the time. As his next opponent on December 7th, and it was going to be held at the Garden. Now, in the press conference, you will probably hear or you could probably see stuff on YouTube where the Argentinian didn't mince his words, basically, during the press conference. He was just calling Ali a chicken, making chicken noises, basically saying <laughs> he didn't go to the Vietnam War. It's actually really funny when you listen to it. He's obviously just trying to get under Ali's skin. Listen to me. Ah, uh, chicken, you see chicken. Chicken, 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 chicken. Good deal. Keep talking. Chicken. Keep talking. I'm going to punish you. Too much nervous. I don't know what happened. Why are you nervous? You're nervous, he says. Relax, my friend. Relax. Take it easy, baby. Okay. okay. <laughs> Pull him away. I might get him now. And it didn't go down to him with Ali. Ali sort of, he quite liked him and he said, now he's pissed me off. Now I'm going to get rid of him. So on the night of the fight, Ali actually had to share a dressing room with a certain fella called Ken Buchanan. Now, but Ken Buchanan was obviously the Scotsman, the lightweight, famously fought uh, Roberto Duran. And he was a big star in New York City at the time. Now, Angelo Dundee, who's obviously Muhammad Ali's trainer, they, they were scraping around looking for a dressing room at, at, at the garden. So they approached Buchanan in his dressing room and they sort of said to him, you know, any chance we could share the dressing room with you? So Buchanan agreed. He, he'd done a tape line down the middle of the room and he told Ali to keep to his side. Uh, <laughs> so that is a, that's an old, an old story that Steve Buncey, I, I, I would like to say, a good bench Steve Buncey because he was one that put that one out. And I think he actually spoke to Ken Buchanan and that was where that story came out. And, and Ken Buchanan did say that Ali was as good as gold. And so he did keep to his side. Uh, he said he was a lovely fella and he did exactly what I told him to do. So the fight itself was tough for Ali because he started quite slow. 
at first. Bearing in mind, obviously, he was just coming back into what was once his physical peak. But he did get better as the fight wore on. And eventually, in the 15th and final round, he actually put Bonavina down twice with two left hooks before a right cross followed by another left, which finally ended the fight. So, we're moving on to December the 30th. And a deal was reached in New York between the current champion, which was smoking Joe Frazier, and the former unbeaten in-the-ring champion, Muhammad Ali for 1971. So this was obviously going to lead into the fight of century, of course, which we'll move on to. But for George Foreman, he ended up going three bouts, taking three more guys on his record, taking him to a total of 25-0 with 22 knockouts. And he's fast becoming a rising star at this point because he's known for his ferociousness in the ring and he's knocked out 22 of the 25 opponents that he shared the ring with. So... People are starting to understand that this guy is a legitimate threat and a legitimate challenger to the World Heavyweight Championship. And now we move in to 1971. So in 1971, on March 8th at the Garden, the unified world champion Joe Frazier and former champion Mohamed Ali finally met in the fight of the century. Now, both fighters had a mind-boggling. And this was, it might not sound a lot today, but it was $2.5 million each, which was the most any fighter had ever earned by some distance. Now, there was 369 cinemas in America and Canada who screened the fight live on closed circuit with the Garden selling out their attendance of 20,455. Now, there were numerous stars that were present. You had Dustin Hoffman, who had actually been running in camp with Hamid Ali. You had Diana Ross. You had Burt Lancaster, who was part of the broadcast team. And another funny story was Frank Sinatra was the official ringside photographer for the, for the Life magazine. Now, rumour has it that Sinatra was unable to acquire a ringside seat, so he actually offered his services to be a cameraman just so he could be close to the action. Wow. So there you have it. Even Frank Sinatra struggled to get a ticket that night because it was just so hot. And Fight of the Century, it, it didn't lie. It really was the Fight of the Century. And Frazier gets into nullify that step attack. Back. Step back, says the referee. Time is important here. Three, four, seven. He takes the mandatory eight count. The only knockdown of the fight. Referee Arthur McCanty scores it eight, six, one even for Frazier. One vote for Joe Frazier. Adi Dollar. Nine to six for Frazier. Frazier is the winner. Frazier is the winner. Correct. Eleven rounds for Frazier. Four rally. One even. And four. The winner. The winner by unanimous decision. And still, heavyweight champion of the world, Joe Frazier. So the ringside seats, of course, for the fight of the century were like gold dust. You basically had to be somebody to get a seat at ringside and there was one particular moment where there was an American drug trafficker by the name of Frank Lucas who was discovered down at ringside wearing his fur coat (laughs) and famously helped the DEA to start their investigation into the mysterious man who sat at ringside. Now Lucas was not the only unsavoury character sitting at ringside that night. There were actually three mafia bosses, pimps and celebrities from illegal trade. So <laughs> in and amongst Dustin Hoffman, in and amongst Diana Ross and Burt Lancaster, and even 
Frank Sinatra, you basically had a few of the unsavoury characters who we'd previously spoken about in various different episodes of our Legendary Nights and Career Profile series. You've got all the Mafia bosses, and it's starting to sort of fade out around this time as well. The stronghold on boxing from the Mafia side of things was really starting to come to an end, so you're still getting them mingling in, trying to sort of work their way in with all the, the big names, but it was a little bit different in 1971. So... Going into this, the whole night was an absolute spectacle. And the fight itself didn't disappoint. Of course it didn't. It's the fight of the century, for God's sake. It was to and throw all the way through the fight, up until the last round. Now, at this point, many people, ringside observers and journalists, felt that Fraser was just in front, just a whisker in front. And in this 15th and final round, Joe Fraser landed one of the most thunderous left hooks on the jaw of Muhammad Ali and put Muhammad Ali down early in the round and remarkably Ali actually got to his feet quicker than the referee Arthur McCante could start the count so he got floored but just like bounced straight back up and sort of got to the corner and got them seconds to get the standing eight count there and then somehow managed to see out the fight but it wasn't going to be Muhammad Ali's night that night because that was the night Joe Frazier really came of age by defending his titles emphatically against the great Muhammad Ali. He did, and credit to Muhammad Ali for getting up in that 15th round and managing so going down so early and managing to, to survive. And he even got caught a couple of times that left hook and then even come back with his own little little combo towards the end. Obviously, it wasn't enough. And obviously, the referee who was... Back then, we had two judges and we had the referee and Arthur McCann. They had it 8-6 to Frazier and judges Archie Idala, sorry, 9-6 and Bill Rent at 11-4. So it was it was a pretty unanimous decision in, in, in Frazier's favour. And Frazier won the fight, as you say. And funny enough, the, the one bit of news that I found was that the week after Fight of the Century, Boxing News in Britain ran a front cover of George Foreman and printed the headline the face that haunts the champion. So George Fulman was clearly the guy that was going to be fighting. I believe at this point he was either, I think he was either number one or he was number two. I think before the fight, he was ranked number two by Muhammad Ali as a contender. And I'm sure after this fight, he became the number one contender for them titles that Frazier held. So following the defeat... Ali decided to relocate to the now-famous Deer Lake in Pennsylvania before getting back onto his comeback trail. He defeated his former sparring partner, Jimmy Ellis, by a 12-round stoppage at the Astrodome in Houston, Texas, and he won the vacant NABF heavyweight title in the summer. Now, Angelo Dundee was in the opposite corner that night, and that was the only one time that that ever happened. It was an absolutely crazy that. Obviously, Angelo Dundee is the mastermind behind the career of Muhammad Ali. He was the man that helped Ali in them difficult times in that corner. But that was the one and only night that he ended up going in the opposite corner, which was Jimmy Ellis, who was obviously Ali's former sparring partner, trained at the same gym together. Yeah, really uh, unusual story that Dundee... I'm not quite sure what the ins and outs of that was. I wouldn't be surprised if Ali just said, look, you can go there for the night, because I'm sure he'd have been pretty confident in getting rid of Jimmy Ellis. To Jimmy Ellis' credit, it was a good fight, though. But back in the Astrodome, Ali was actually criticised by the Associated Press, which was basically nothing new there. He was always ridiculed by the press, so... He was ridiculed for the fact that he didn't finish Buster Mathers. And that wasn't only the press, to be fair. Angelo Dundee was known to be shouting at Ali when he put Buster Mathers down twice in the last two man. He said he was shouting him to get rid of him, get rid of him. And he didn't. He held back and he just literally see the fight out to get a decision. And, and Ali was actually quoted as saying, 
how can I sleep at night knowing I've killed a man? So Muhammad Ali, back to his old trick, saying, you know, he didn't want to finish Buster off because he didn't want to kill him. So he held on to the NABF title on November 17th in 1971. Well, the year ended with a seventh-round knockout victory in Zurich in Switzerland against German Jürgen Blin on Boxing Day before he set off on a little trip to the Middle East to fight Mac Foster in Tokyo. En route, Ali stopped off in Libya where he met President Colonel Gaddafi and swapped stories. It was Gaddafi that actually reminded Ali that they had met at the old Highbury Stadium in 1966. So for anybody who loves obviously the football, that is that is Arsenal's football ground in the UK, uh, where he had acquired his autograph, but maybe not the champion of the world at that time, but the people's champion. Yeah, yeah. So he, he reminded Mohamed Ali that he actually got an autograph, from, and Ali apparently says he remembers. I'm, <laughs> I'm not quite sure if he did or not, but you know, great little story there, something of a little Libya and Chatting with President McGarvey, I mean, that's, that's crazy. I mean, that's just mad. But Frazier was the champion at the time. And Ali was the people's champion, but still the number one contender. But obviously after that, the fight of the century, you know, it, it just it lost that title. It had gone to shit, basically, for him. So uh, the number two contender is now the number one contender. was the new kid on the block, which was big George Foreman, as we just said. And he finished the year 1971 with seven wins, seven knockouts, and had an unbeaten record at the time of 32. So, George Foreman was basically the man to be stepping up to the plate to be taking on Joe Frazier at some point. So, we move into 1972 now, and in Vancouver, Canada, in a rematch that was just as tough as their first encounter, Ali outpointed George Chevalo on May the 1st before stopping Jerry Quarry in seven rounds at the Las Vegas Convention Centre on June the 27th. Now, Quarry got battered by Ali in a dominating display, but it wasn't the real story of the fight. Don King had emerged from a prison cell. Now, this was for, <laughs> obviously, his shady goings-on. And Don King was now involved in boxing at this point. So he was released from prison. It was because, I don't know if anybody knows this story, but Don King was actually convicted of second-degree murder when he stomped his employee, Sam Garrett, to death. So when we when we talk about Don King in all the different episodes we've run and all the listeners have heard us say we think he's a slippery, slimy motherfucker, it's not just because of the fact that he, he robbed a few fighters throughout the career. Yeah, he put on some awesome cards and some awesome fights, of course, this being one of them at Recovering, but the fact that he murdered somebody and he got out of prison and he managed to forge a pretty legendary career for himself. So he became involved in boxing at this particular fight, which I felt... Looking back on the the history of it, you you suddenly see Don King make this emergence into this particular legendary night. So, moving on from the Don King situation, going back to Ali, he went to Ireland for a fight against Alvin Lewis before Ali then went on to stop the great and legendary Floyd Patterson in seven rounds on cuts. And this was actually Patterson's last professional fight in front of a crowd of 17,378 people, which produced a gate of $512,361 at the Madison Square Garden. Yeah, intriguing. Don King emerges in 1972, and obviously he will emerge. He'll be spoken about a lot, obviously, in the Rumble of the Jungle. We'll go into that in a minute, and... And as you're right, yeah, Ali did beat Patterson. Patterson's last fight, which is crazy, and it's Floyd. And what a legend Floyd Patterson was. And so in Ali's sixth fight of the year, he dropped Bob Foster seven times before the fight was finally stopped in the eighth. After the bout, Foster said, they say he slowed down after the layoff, but the guy was still just too far. So 
Bob Foster, obviously, was unable to cope with the mastery of Muhammad Ali. Ali was on the comeback trail following the Fraser defeat. So, you know, moving into 1973. So this is where George Foreman really comes to prominence in this particular tale. So on the 22nd of January, George Foreman knocked out Joe Fraser in two rounds at the National Stadium in Kingston, Jamaica, which was billed as the Sunshine Showdown. Fraser was knocked down <laughs> three times three times in the first round and three times in the second round before the referee stopped the bout to protect him from further punishment. And there's a particular moment where he hits him, I think it's on the side of the head, and I think he hits him so hard, you literally see Joe Frazier's feet lift off the canvas. Foreman is in punching and in taking a punch. I think he hurt Joe Frazier. I think Joe is hurt. Angie Dundee, Ali's trainer, right next to me is saying it. You may hear him. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! The heavyweight champion is taking the mandatory eight count, and Foreman is as poised as can be in a neutral corner. He is as poised as can be. We have a minute left in this first round, and already this fight is proving out what some have expected. It is target practice. Frazier is ready to go again. Joe is standing. There he goes. Three times. Three times. The fight is stopped. No, it is not. It is not stopped. Angie Dundee is screaming, stop it. Bertie Pacheco, Ali's doctor next to me. It is over. It is over. It is over in the second round. George Foreman is the heavyweight champion of the world. It's incredible, really, what what George Foreman did to, to Joe Frazier after. Oh, it's just, it's brutal. It, it just, even still today when I watch that fight, I'm just troubled by it. I still can't believe just what, what he did to Joe Frazier. And, and that was why, obviously, he was considered to be the monster. He was And the, the other crazy thing was as well, was Joe Frazier went into that fight as favourite. Well, believe it or not, because people felt that Foreman hadn't really fought anyone. And you look for his record in them 25 knockouts that he sort of the year before or the 22 knockouts in 25 fights before moving to 32 and 0. The only real name he had was George Chivalo. So you can understand why Fraser went into that fight as favourite. But by what he by doing what he'd done in them two rounds is just remarkable. And, but in the meantime, Ali obviously beat Joe Bugner. And um, the, the, the famous wasn't so much about the fight, but the famous part of it was that Elvis Presley presented Ali with the famous studded gown that he wore with embarked with diamonds and diamondiques as the people's champion on the back. Yeah, so that's always one image you'll see where you have Muhammad Ali and Elvis Presley standing side by side and that was it. And, and Joe Bugner was the guy that he fought before to being presented that. And another story was that Joe Bugner actually went up to Elvis and asked him, where's mine? And, and Elvis was sort of dismissive <laughs> of Joe Bugner. And Joe Bugner basically told him to piss off <laughs> and walked off. And that just says a lot about Joe Bugner. But Back to the boxing, he put in a good performance, Joe Bugner. He got cut as well in the first round. And, and even Ali was quoted saying, I predict in two years he will be a heavyweight world champion. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for Bugner that way. But he was a very good young fighter that went the distance with some of the, most, the biggest legends in boxing history. So, moving on in Ali's career, he actually lost a closely fought contest against the great Ken Norton on March the 31st at the Sports Arena in California. Now, Angelo Dundee said that in this fight, Ali broke his jaw in the second round, while Eddie Futch, who was Norton's trainer, said it happened in the 11th round. Either way, Ali did show immense bravery, but if it was from the second, then holy shit, Ali 
Harley has to be one of the toughest bastards to have ever laced a pair of gloves up. And I think I think we do know that. And, but the fact that that story of him having his jaw broken in the second round, going all the way through that particular fight to the end, to the 15 rounds, uh, how the hell he did that, I, I honestly don't know. And it was actually dead even going into the 12th round as well. And obviously Norton edged the last couple of rounds to get the split decision. Now, the interesting thing about the back of this particular fight is not only did obviously Ali lose this fight, but Howard Cassell of ABC, someone who had interviewed Ali previously, was at ringside and he reported, and this is where his little ongoing feud with Ali began really, and he was quoted as saying, he is a beaten man and he is a broken fighter. Oh, wow. And Al Cassell knows his stuff. I mean, he obviously felt that he was done. Obviously, that wasn't the case. He got that massively wrong. In the meantime, George Foreman savagely destroyed a guy called Jose Roman inside a 12-foot ring as well. They stuck him in a 12-foot ring in Japan. I mean, this guy had absolutely no chance. Once you going in a 12-foot ring against George Foreman, (laughs) goodness sake, you got no chance. I mean, it's just like just sending a man to the gallows, really, isn't it? And it was on the September the 1st, it basically ended with an Iran, which is what, what what we expected. So the one thing that Ahmed Ali did was he got an, an immediate rematch of Ken Norton. Now, the Norton and Ali fight was September 10th at the Forum in California, and Dundee was clear about what he was saying and how he felt at the time. He felt that this was a career-defining night for Ahmed Ali. He had to win. A second loss would have been a huge setback for him. And he brought in a young Larry Holmes, to come in as a sparring partner to test the jaw during the six-month break he had from the ring. So just shows you that they they knew this was a massive point because if Ali didn't win this fight, you know, it just shows you that this rumble in the jungle may never have happened. That's crazy. I know, it's crazy to even think about that. But obviously Ali yeah. managed, he managed to do it. He managed to come back and this particular second fight, the immediate rematch, was a carbon copy of the first fight. It was a very, very close fight, but... Ali managed to nick the last round of the fight to go on to win it. It was quite evident, looking back on Ali's career, that Ken Norton was... He was clearly Muhammad Ali's bogeyman. He was clearly the bogeyman for Muhammad Ali. Now, obviously, people think Joe Frazier was the bogeyman. Yes, they had that great trilogy, of course, but people forget about the underrated fights with Ken Norton as well. And it's obviously evidence from them fights that the styles do make fights. So, Ali finished the year with a unanimous decision over Rudy Lubers, and that happened on the 20th of October. 1973. That basically ended the year for Ali, and Foreman obviously is now the champion. So on January 28th, Ali and Joe Frazier have their second encounter. Now, this wasn't the best of the other, you know, the other two, obviously, the main ones, the, the, the fight of the century, and obviously the three millennia, which happens after the Rumble in Jungle. But this is probably... More famous for the brawl on the ABC studios, which is something <laughs> we've covered, Sean, uh, on our, our brawls episode. So please go and have a listen to that because there's some cracking stories in there. And also, uh, secondly, Eddie Futch. Eddie Futch was outraged with Ali's persistent holding, and Futch reviewed the fight and apparently said that Ali had held Frazier's 132, uh, 133 times during the fight. Wow. Um, yeah, not not too sure about that. But end of the day, it, it was there was a lot of holding involved. It was a little bit stop and start. The referee allowed it to go. In the end, Ali got his revenge, and it was one one between them two in uh, on the twenty eighth of Jam. So you get that second fight. Ali gets his revenge over the the loss in nineteen seventy one in the fight of the century. In the meanwhile, the heavyweight champion of the world 
is George Foreman. On a match of 26, he absolutely butchers Ken Norton in two rounds. This is the same Ken Norton that we've just been speaking about, where Ali kind of went life and death with him in two fights, and he managed to just manage to beat him in the second one in the immediate rematch. So, at this point, you're thinking George Foreman is destroying everything that's put in front of him. Muhammad Ali is, is struggling. And when you make the comparisons of how George Foreman's dispatching of Ken Norton and Joe Fraser and Ali's that go in life and death with these guys, automatically, as a fight fan at the time, you can understand why people felt like this was going to be a one-horse race, really, when it came down to George Foreman in this particular fight. So this leads us nicely, then, on to the rumble in the jungle and the build-up to the rungle in the jungle. And it's back to our good old friend, the charismatic and the immoral Don King. Muhammad Ali is an individual that is a superstar first. He's a great fighter. He has a great sense of imagination. And he has to deal with that. So now you can't blame him, you know, for not supporting or making a promoter what a promoter should be ordinarily. A promoter should be able to stand within the confines of his own realm of reality. Muhammad Ali is the prize fighter. He's the artist. He's the man in the center of the ring that is taking the blows. Now, it's up to me as a promoter to make this a colorful and exciting extravaganza, to create an aura of excitement around this event that surrounds the event up and to and after the event to make it something really a happening in an event rather than just a prize fight. He does his job. He's a promoter's dream. And so, therefore, if a promoter has any imagination himself, and he can bring in a people power uh, situation where he can involve other people and give people a cause and a reason to, to root for friend or foe, then you have what I call the magic of excitement. He was the brains of this, of course. He was the man that orchestrated the rumble in the jungle. And it's an interesting story how some of this actually came about. There was actually a story that after a meeting with George Foreman, rumour has it, that he actually cornered, this is Don King by the way, he cornered the heavyweight <laughs> champion of the world, George Foreman, this scary guy who was knocking everybody out for fun, in a toilet, and he asked him to sign a contract in principle, guaranteeing him $5 million to fight Muhammad Ali. Wow, unbelievable really, isn't it? That, that he's done that, but that's that's what he, I believe it would have been for me from the Don King film, if anyone's seen that, it's a bit of a B film, but it's his theory behind it, you know, we all know Don King, as you say, he's, he's charismatic but immoral and a bit unsavoury. I wouldn't be surprised if he probably made some of that up. But hey, I'm not going to. You know, it sounds a lot better, doesn't it? And so, so Don King, after obviously getting the contracting principle with George Foreman, he managed to do the same thing with Muhammad Ali and sign both for the fight, both for five million dollars. Now the trouble was, Don King didn't have ten million dollars to hand over. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so he's, he's managed to get these two guys to sign for a fight. They have no idea where it's going to be, what's going to happen, how they're going to get their money, just that they're going to get $5 million. So now he's in, in, in stuck because he's thinking, well, who, you know, $10 million, I've got Arlie, I've got, got Foreman. Now, $10 million is a huge amount of money. So what, what he did decide to do was, the fact was he couldn't actually get any of the money from anywhere in America or in Europe because basically he had outpriced his rival promoters and they did not want to help him in any shape or form unless they got a slice of the pie. And obviously, Don King weren't interested in that. He wanted to be able to earn some money himself. So King decided to head off to Africa, where he actually convinced a guy called Fred Wyman, who was an American advisor for Zaire's dictator, 
who was Mobutu Sese Seko, and he actually persuaded Mobutu that the publicity for such a high-profile event would generate millions and would also help his regime. Now, Mobutu agreed for the fight to be held in his country. Another interesting aspect of this is that the Libyan di- dictator, Gaddafi, who we just spoke about before, he actually was the primary financial sponsor for the event and provided the purse money for athletes and covering other major expenses. So somehow, struggling to get the money, Donkin, but yet he manages to convince these gentlemen who were unsavoury and shady themselves to front the money. And they did it. And the one thing about Mobutu quickly is that, I mean, people actually said that he was the, the Stalin of America. So this guy was not a very nice guy. He actually renamed the Dominican Republic to the Republic of Zaire. In 1972, he actually warned the people of Zaire to change their names from European to African names. And he warned priests that if they were caught baptizing a Zaire newborn with a European name, they'd be in prison for five years. It embezzled billions and billions of dollars which, from his country's money, which actually made him one of the most richest men in the world. I mean, this guy was an absolute monster. Let's get it right. And, and also, another story was that he actually paid millions of the country's money to build runways for Concorde so he could frequently take shopping trips to Paris by Concorde and buy himself his, his grey suits and his mad leopard skin hats. So this guy was the most unsavoury character and it, it just doesn't surprise me that Don King found him. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? You know, when you look at Mobutu and you go and do a quick Google search on him, for anybody that's listening now who doesn't know who President Mobutu is, he, he reminds me a little bit of uh, Eddie Murphy's character in Coming to America and, and that family and the dad, James Earl Jones, plays. <laughs> that's who he reminds me of. It just reminds me of this this ruthless dictator, which is what he was. In the weeks leading up to the fight, two white foreigners were murdered and crime was at a high point. So President Mobutu did not want there to be any crimes in the country at this time, given that it was such a high-profile fight. Everybody who's anybody was going to come over there, and they wanted to shed a great light on Zaire. They wanted to shed what was going to be a a great thing for the country, and and showing that he isn't this bad guy that, that people think he is. So he decided to come up with a way of deterring these crimes from happening, And how was he going to do that? So what he ended up doing, he got all his men to round up a thousand well-known criminals and randomly picked out a hundred out of them thousand and had them executed. Legend has it that those executions were actually carried out within tombs that were located under the Stade du Maike, which is the 20th May Stadium, where the ring would be placed for the fight. So the executions supposedly again again it's supposed that we don't really fully know that this was true or not but many many people believe that these executions took place underneath the stadium where the ring was eventually placed where the fight eventually happened that's absolutely monstrous isn't it really i mean it is crazy and and the other thing is i mean those that have you know historians the people that have reported on it said that the, the crime rate did actually drop as well. So it was a clear indication that this guy weren't messing about. And he, even even with his, when he did, I believe he became president because of a coup as well. So he actually, because he was a military, sort of, I think he was the head of the military or something, and it was a coup where he made himself president. And he would actually hang people in front of others as well. So this guy was, you just don't mess about with this guy. And it's just crazy to think that Don King sitting in his fucking prison cell manager he just gets the bollocks to do this he just i mean no matter what you say about don king you can't say he hasn't got 
massive bollocks. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, you can't knock him for that. But moving away from, from, obviously, the politics of it, once the fight was announced, many observers gave Ali little or no chance. Even some feared for Ali's life against Foreman. The time may have come to say goodbye to Muhammad Ali because, very honestly, I don't think he can beat George Foreman. It's hard for me, as a reporter, to be totally objective in this case. I will co-sell. You told everybody I don't have a chance. Well, chump, all I need is a prayer, because if that prayer reached the right man, not only will George Fulman fall, but mountains will fall. Muhammad Ali has been a significant factor in my own career. I thought before he was idled for three and a half years, he was the best fighter I ever saw. And you're always talking about Muhammad. You're not the same man you were 10 years ago. Well, I asked your wife, and she told me you're not the same man you were two years ago. I still think he's a remarkable athlete, and one can never put anything beyond him for that reason. I'm going to let everybody know that that thing you got on your head is a phony, and it comes from a tail of a pony. I suspect that for the rest of his life, the enthusiasm will still be there. Even when he's out of boxing, he'll be all that boxing has. And then it was at the ABC reporter again, Howard Cassell, that was quoted as saying, the time may have come to say goodbye to Muhammad Ali, because very honestly, don't think he can beat George Foreman. Maybe he can pull off a miracle against George Foreman. So young, so strong, so fearless. Against George Foreman, who has done away with his opponents one round after another in less than three rounds, it's hard for me to conjure with that. So Howard Cassell was completely dead against the fact that Muhammad Ali was ever going to win this fight because he was just formal and so ferocious, which makes this whole thing just so beautiful. Oh, yeah. This is where, as I was saying earlier, when he, when he first talked about him being a broken and beaten man, this is where the war of words really began. It was that particular broadcast that he did, Howard Cassell, which really sort of set Ali off in his trend. So the war of words didn't stop there between Ali and Cassell. Cassell said that Ali was not the same man he used to be 10 years ago and Ali famously came back with his quote which said, you're always talking about Ali, you're not the same man you were 10 years ago. Well, I asked your wife and she told me that you're not the same man you were two years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Quality, absolutely quality, brilliant. And obviously, we got some of the greatest quotes of Muhammad Ali come out of the build-up for this. He was on fine form during the whole build-up and the one that stands out, and I absolutely love this next quote. Frazier was puffy, so puffy, Ken Norton and both his eyes was almost closed. I beat a man to death. I'll bruise up George Fulmer. If I don't knock him out, I'll cut him up. All around his face will be nicks and cuts. I'm so sharp. When I finished, they look like I had a razor blade. I'm so bad, you know what I've been doing? Last week, I went out to the jungle. I wrestled with an alligator. I tussled with a whale. By the handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. I'm bad, man. Know what I did last week? Last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. I'm fast. You know how fast I am? Fell, I'm so fast last week, I cut the light off in my bedroom, hit the switch, I was in the bed before the room was dark. I've done wrestle with an alligator, I've done tussle with a whale. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalised a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. <laughs> oh, goodness me. He's just a poet, isn't he? Absolutely brilliant. I mean, I do wonder, Harry, 
Did he just sort of sit on the John and think up these quotes? I really don't know, but it was it was just beyond his time, wasn't he, Ali? Yeah. And another another classic from Ali was I'm so fast that last night I turned off the light switch in my hotel room and was in my bed before it was dark. <laughs> <laughs> And, and another one, which is one of my favourites, I think this is my favourite, is Ali fights great. He's got speed and endurance. If you decide to fight him, increase your insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. So this was, uh, you couldn't ask for any better build-up, really, with Muhammad Ali and, and the quotes that he was coming out with. Unbelievable. And looking back on it now, it's just a piece of history that we all love and, and what creates podcast episodes like this, really, you know, us being able to sit here and and speak about something that's happened so many years ago and and still love to watch the videos of Ali doing his thing is is unbelievable. So going back to the build-up to the fight then, to combat any negative publicity of the fight being staged in Congo, Ali combated with an excellent quote, which she said, countries go to war to get their names on the map and wars cost a lot more than $10 million. Even with the horrific stories, that have since come out about President Mobutu. It's hard to disagree with Muhammad Ali on that particular quote. It really is. And, you know, obviously it was getting a bit of stick, but luckily for, for Mobutu, the crime rate had dropped. So, you know, there wasn't much press in terms of the troubles of Zaire. Although many press observers that went out there were stuck in old camps and they knew that this place was not the place to be messing about in. So Ali was a very endearing figure to the people of Zaire. And his mind games played out well, turning the native people in his favour against Foreman. A popular chant for theirs leading into the fight and during the fight was obviously Ale Bombaye. And that's something we'll all remember, which does mean Ali killed him. And that was, he actually sat in a press conference and, and, and basically convinced as well the, the Congo people that, that Foreman was, was from Belgium. <laughs> and, and the crazy thing was, is, the Congo, or the Congo, I say Congo, it was the Zaire people because it was the, the Republic of Zaire at the time. And, and they didn't even know that George Foreman was, was black either. They thought that George Foreman was white. So, you know, it, it all sort of worked in his favour and everything. And, and I'll let you tell the story. But, you know, there was another reason why they uh, associated George Foreman with, with the Belgians who actually had ruled in, in the Congo up until their independence in 1964. I feel like I'm in the best of condition and I, was, I would have been able to fight a couple of weeks ago, I feel. Are your thoughts going against Ali, have they changed from the time when you were going in against Frazier? Are you a little more confident now? Uh, I realize the things that I can do now, of course, because I've been doing them a lot more now. I realize that I'm a champion and because I am a champion, it means that I've practiced hard a lot harder than the other guys around. So I, I'm pretty well confident now that I, confident that I can do all the things that I want to do. So the, the crazy part about this is, obviously George Foreman's going to a country which he doesn't know a, real, a lot about, to be honest with you. So George Foreman was a massive dog lover. He had a German Shepherd, which he absolutely loved and took everywhere with him. So obviously it was part of him going over there for such a long period of time that he decided to take his German Shepherd over to Zaire with him. Now, it's ironic, really, because when he took the dog there, he didn't know that taking that dog was going to cause such a stir because the people of Zaire in history, of not too long ago, only 10 years earlier, the Belgians actually ran Zaire, as it was once known, before its independence, as you were just saying there, Johnson. So what used to happen was the Belgian police used to have German Shepherd dogs and they used to basically chase a lot of people around with them. Not randomly, of course, but in terms of antagonising the people to try and keep them in line, to try and keep them in order. So they were shit scared of dogs. 
the people of Zaire, it just reminded them of a time that had since passed that they didn't really want to remember. So George Foreman turns up with this big, big German shepherd and they're all looking at him thinking, oh no, we hate, we hate this guy already. We can't stand this guy. So Ali's mind games in this particular build-up were probably probably the most clever mind games that he ever played, to be honest with you. I can't think of any other fights in his career where I think the mind games played such a factor, really, in, into this particular fight. And this was this was probably the biggest one because he actually turned a whole nation on a guy who was an American and a black American like himself. It's befitting that I go out of boxing like I came in meeting a big, strong bully that knocks everybody out, that everybody's afraid of. England can't produce nothing to beat George Fullman. Africa can't produce nothing to beat George Fullman. Japan, China, no country but old Muhammad Ali. See, realize 32 is not old for men that don't take a punishment. Sugar Ray was blasting at 32. Sugar Ray was, wasn't going nowhere at 32, looking good. Archie Moore was cruising at 32. Walcott won his title at 37. I'm great like them, I'm greater. And it's the fist that controls the brains. And my brains are so wise. See, my fist, my brains beat Joe Frazier. I'll thank Ken Norton. I plan my fight round by round. First round, I might say, well, I won't knock him out. He won't knock me out. But I'll get the most jabs in. I'll keep my distance. I'll get the most points in. I win that round. Second round, I'll just take my time. I'll stick him. Pop, pop, keep moving. Move on Fulman. Keep moving because he can't move. Keep moving. He'll be trying to corner me, cut the ring off, tack him. Pop, 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 pop. Back him up, tie him up. Pop, pop. Won the second round. Then he's getting worried. Oh, I got to get him. He's starting to drop his bums. Make him tie himself out. Whatever happens, I win the most rounds. See, I'll think a man. See, the matador beats the bull. The bull is the strongest. Bull hits the hardest, but the matador is the smartest. Man conquered all the beasts in the jungles, got them in cages, but the beast can whoop the man. See, it's the brains. Man got me here in a few hours on a jumbo jet. Man didn't pick the jet up and carry it, just threw it through the air, but man's brains made the engine and the pistons and put it together. See, my brains will offset this mummy. Be at the theater early, because this man, I'm gonna retire. If you think I whoop Sonny Liston, you wait till I get George Fullman. He talks too much, he's ugly, he's pretending I'm the true champion, and they make me the underdog, I'm gonna show them all they're wrong, because I'm the champion, I'm the real champion. There'll never be one like me, and all of you people in Britain who rank me as the greatest, I'm gonna prove I'm the greatest, I'm gonna prove to you I'm the greatest, we gonna prove to the world I'm the greatest, this is my last fight, I don't want none of you to miss it, so please, come to the theaters, I'm going to eat some raw meat, and I'm going to train, I'm gonna to get ready and chop some old trees. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? And George Fulham probably had a tougher upbringing as well than than Ali. But obviously, you know the way he, he, you know, the persona he brought. He was there to fight for the Congo people, the Zaire people. He was there to fight for them, and and Fulham was the enemy. So, and he played it so well, he really did. And 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 the one other thing was was that Don King during this time he actually you know was busy at work as he does, and he arranged a concert from September the 20th to September the 22nd with some of the biggest names in show business and he had mega stars out there such as James Brown, B.B. King and the Spinners and he had these guys come over here and perform for a whole weekend to get the event, the lead up and the build up to it and this is all before the fight which was scheduled for the 25th and he arranged his massive concert which on, on the documentary we were kids, they really do tap into that and you can see for yourself James Brown performing and B.B. King and 
and obviously it got the people pumped, you know, the whole world pumped really for this for this fantastic fight that was going to be happening on the September the 25th. That particular documentary, I think a lot of boxing fans will have watched it by now. It's called When We Were Kings. Fantastic documentary of the whole build-up to that particular night and the build-up, the sort of breakdown and aftermath. Sort of similar to the Legendary Night series, really, in a way, but it's it's more documenting what's going on outside of the ring and the lead-up to it. And another iconic video in that documentary is of George Foreman pummeling the heavy bag, leaving an absolutely huge dent further illustrating Big George's power as well. And it's also the reason why many observers were obviously going for George Foreman in this fight because, you know, you look at the age differences and, and obviously George Foreman a lot younger in Ali, who was 32, soon to be 33-year-old. And and a lot of the reasons came down to the, the comparisons in performances against guys like Norton and Fraser, the fact that he was such a ferocious puncher and he was hurting everybody. So it was all sort of setting the scene to, to what was going to be an epic night. Now, as he was pointing out earlier about the fight and the date, it was supposed to happen on September the 25th. And it didn't happen on September the 25th because eight days prior to that particular day, Foreman was actually cut above his right eye, which was by an accidental elbow thrown by his sparring partner, Bill McMurray, in a sparring session, which is actually, again, documented in When We Were Kings. If you watch it, you can actually see a little glimpse of the sparring session going on, and then it cuts to Foreman with a cut over his eye and ended up needing stitches. So he ended up having 11 stitches, and as a result of that, it meant that the date of the fight had to be pushed back to October the 30th. Yeah, really interested in it. And, and, and Ali, you see in that documentary, I, I sort of he was really troubled in those first couple of hours when the news broke. And he was actually saying, get Joe Frazier over here. I'll fight Joe Frazier tomorrow. I'll fight Joe Frazier on the 25th and then fight Foreman on the 30th. So he was really peed off with it. But I think I think the one big bit of news was the fact that what were the fighters going to do? Uh, what Were they going to stay in Africa? Or were they going to go back to America and then come back? And what they both decided to do was they were going to stay in Africa and they were going to continue to acclimate themselves to the weather, uh, obviously, uh, and get themselves prepared for the fight. And and I actually believe that it was those extra few days that probably helped Harley. And I think it helped him to keep talking, uh, keep getting the public behind him, getting in Foreman's head. And, and I think it, the, the actual, the cut, after, I believe, actually helped Muhammad Ali rather than George Foreman. Well, being us both religious people, Mohammed and myself, he'll be very fortunate if I don't act as an exorcist and beat the devil out of Well, you've got to also think about what else was going on at the time. Like, this was this was a fight that was so close to falling through. And people don't speak a lot about that until you sort of really look into the depths of how everything went down. So you had the world looking and the world watching for what was going to happen. You had all the big celebrities, the performers over there at that particular time. Then obviously the cut happens and John King's is shitting himself and thinking, shit, this is all going to fall through. And also you've got President Mobutu at the time as well, who obviously wanted to portray Zaire as a, a fantastic country and that there was no dictatorship going on and all these executions were happening that were rumoured. So... What ended up happening was a lot of the journalists that were that were situated in Zaire at the time were like, "Well, what we're going to do now? We're going to, uh, you know, we're going to have to head back and then come back here." And actually, President Mobutu was basically he, he kind of said to them, "You're not going home. <laughs> You're not going home," because he was worried that they were never going to come back. This was the only yeah. one time that all the journalists 
of the world were going to be in this one place for this one particular fight and going to report on what Zaire was like as a country. And of course, they were going to go back and report on Mobutu as well. So Mobutu and all his handlers basically accommodated all the journalists and everybody that was involved in staging the fight and he didn't want them to go home. So he basically made sure that they were looked after. Some of the accommodation, as you can see in that documentary, is, is a little bit shite. But then it was a situation where I think a lot of people felt threatened by the fact that if they, they did leave or they did try to leave, you know, they probably, God forbid, what was going to happen to them. So, yeah, it's interesting, really, that obviously they was in a situation where there was a guy that was kind of known for, for some unsavoury things, but kind of to put this perception across that it wasn't an unsavoury leadership that was going on and it was a great country but yet obviously his handlers kind of forced the journalists to kind of stay because they were so worried about the fight never actually happening in Zaire so you know watching back and looking at all that information you know it was so close really to losing what eventually went on to be an amazing fight it really did and then you're right and to their credit they stuck about and uh, and the fact that the fight obviously is happening now sort of a whole month later, and it must must have played played a part in in both of them, really. In terms of you know, you, you lose your home comforts. You expect in a fight, you really up for it, and sort of eight days before it, you know, not just for Ali but for Foreman as well. He wouldn't have wanted to get cut. He would have wanted to get in the ring. And even Foreman was quoted saying, "I'm I'm not worried about the delay. I'm fine. I'm going to stay here, and and it's not going to be no problem. If anything, it's going to work against Ali rather than me." But it gave Ali a whole month to just continue his, his pursuit of uh, his verbal of words against Foreman and get the, the people on his side. And he was even saying as he'd walked down, it was, oh, Ali Bumbaye, he would start the chance, you know. As I say, he convinced a whole room full of Zaire people that, that George Foreman was, was actually Belgium, <laughs> from Belgium, which is just always makes me laugh. But it's <laughs> just that's the sort of guy he was, isn't it? It's, it's, it, was, it was those type of things that I think worked, mate. Tremendous talk about the possibility of rain. I don't think the weather could be any more beautiful than it is tonight. There's a full moon out. And Ali is getting the people to chant Ali Bumaye. That means Ali kill him. There's the site at ringside. 60 to 70,000 in attendance here in this 20th of May stadium. Obviously we come we come to the fight, the, the night of the fight and in the dressing room, the one thing that I've, I've read and I've heard, and it was in a documentary again, is that, you know, in Ali's dressing room, it was very silent. And Ali was sort of sitting in the dressing room and he's sort of saying, like, well, what's going on? Why is everyone so quiet? And so he stood up, starts shadow boxing, and he starts shouting his mouth off. And he says, I'm going to dance, I'm going to dance, I'm going to whip Foreman behind. And, and he's getting them up and getting them reared up, and they're all going along with it and cheering along. And, and he just lifted the spirit, he lifted the vibe just before walking out to the ring against George Foreman and I think the one other thing was I wanted to mention was Mobutu did not attend the fight you know if you ever see the fight you see the massive picture above the ring of himself because obviously you know he wants to let the world know that he's he's a part of it but he, he didn't attend the fight because he actually feared assassination so he sat in, in his palace watching it on television <laughs> yeah. he sat on his throne watching the big fight between <laughs> Ali and Foreman whilst them poor hundred souls was executed underneath <laughs> the stadium where that ring was on that particular fight night or supposedly so we now move into the fight itself. And of course, so many words that we could say about this particular fight, so many things that have come out after the fight, but we're going to give this fight a little bit of a breakdown now and go through the rounds bit by bit and pick up some of the notable 
parts that happened in the particular round. So the first round, Ali actually comes out and he surprised not only George Foreman, but the world and everybody watching because he actually started by throwing 12 right leads, which was something Ali was not accustomed with. In fact, something many fighters would not dare to do against a huge puncher, especially like Foreman. So he basically came out and did the opposite of what a George Foreman was expecting, really. A huge puncher like George Foreman would just wait for that opportunity. But Ali... He surprised him by coming out that way and didn't give him the opportunity to, to throw them big punches straight away. And I think that's... It was like taking centre ring. It was like trying to take advantage and getting the, 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 the mental psychology of the fight already already in his favour at that point. Yeah, and he, he did so. I mean, the throw in the right hand, I mean, it's, it's something that you throw the right hand, you do leave yourself open to the left hand and the left hook. And and I think it just, it just took forward on unaware. And that was the only round, really, when you see Ali really go for it and uh, uh but you could see you know it was clearly it was it was a trick that he knew he could do for for, for three minutes but beyond that i mean right at the end of the round you see foreman sort of catch him as well and you sort of think yeah he carries on like that i think it's going to be over pretty quickly but it was a good round for ali and and ali had told his trainer angelo dundee as well as other fans he had a secret plan for foreman and and in round two just before the bell sounded for the, for the second round, Arley stood, you can see it, Arley's standing in his corner, staring over at Foreman, and you can see he's almost psyching himself out, and then he starts waving his hand at the crowd, and he starts off the chant, Ale Bumbaye, Ale Bumbaye, and, and 60,000 people in that stadium, or 66,000, whatever it was, that were in attendance, they all joined in in the chant, in the chant as the bell sounded for that second round, and, and then one thing we'll all know is, Arley began to lean on the ropes, and cover up. He would. He allowed Foreman to to pummel his body and his his arms, as he, which was just seemed to be a bit crazy. But it was a strategy that Ali obviously dubbed as the famous rope dope. Well, this is where it all began. The rope dope for him. Obviously, people started to see George Foreman pummeling away at Muhammad Ali at this point, and you're thinking to yourself, "Well, everybody's going to be right here watching it." You're looking at a guy who's he's just backing up constantly. He's just letting the guy back him up, and he's letting the guy pummel away on him obviously unbeknown to, to, to us in the world that what was going to transpire later on down the line was was all a part of a big plan so you move into round three and it's pretty much the same as the second really Foreman's continuing to punch Ali Ali's on the ropes he's spending most of his time in the rounds on the ropes but you could see at this point already that all the punches that were being thrown all the energy that was being expended by George Foreman was already sort of starting to make him blow out of his ass a little bit. And bearing in mind, obviously, they've had to acclimatise to, to Zaire and the, the, the actual ring and the degrees. And we've we've told many a stories about certain fights in history where when they actually get in the ring and they end up so hot that they nearly end up passing out because of it. And I can't imagine how these two guys must have felt in this particular fight. So you move into round number four. The effects at this point are clearly visible. Foreman. He's, he's really starting to tire now at this point. He's starting to step forward in straight lines even more than he, than he already did. And at one point, he actually gets caught with a combination by Muhammad Ali on, on the counter where he actually gets hurt a little bit and starts to stagger. And Ali throws that combination, gets a really good combination off, but then he decides to back off again and retreat to the ropes. So again, you're thinking to yourself, watching the fight and analysing it, you're thinking... Why didn't he put the pressure on at this point of the fight? Why didn't he go forward more at this point of the fight if George Foreman was starting to tire? But obviously, he had this master plan up his sleeve. Yeah, he did. And, and uh, that was early in the fourth as well. And you can see that 
the game plan's working and, and, and so moving into the fifth and then Foreman basically dominated that fifth round as he had been since the second. But Ali was throwing them sort of straight rights which were connecting, doing damage any time they sort of they landed and any time there was a bit of space he was throwing them. And they were becoming a bit more frequent at this point, as, as you mentioned, rightly so you know, Foreman is, is clearly tiring and, and it was in the fifth that Ali again staggers Foreman with a combination right at the end of the round this time rather at the start of the fourth he's right on the back end of the fifth so Ali at this point although he's sort of biding his time you know he's he's allowing George to come at him he would a lot of the shots to be fair when you watch it are on the arms but you see the Frazier fight and it was literally he was hitting Frazier's arms he was hitting through the arms no matter if you put your hands up when you've got a devastating punch like that that knocks you off your balance anyway so obviously using the ropes and they were slack as well. That was the other thing. I mean, that's the one thing probably didn't mention is the ropes were slack. It was as tight as they could get in Zaire, and they were slacker than you would normally see. And people believe, and all the foremen believe that that actually assisted Ali as well. But you know, it was again pretty much the same. Just that Ali now was starting to just throw them combinations when he was getting those little bits of spaces. We move in to round number six, and Foreman again. It's just, it's difficult to sort of break down because it's kind of it's the same pattern and the same trend throughout the whole of the fight, really. So in round six, although Foreman is continuing to throw punches and come forward, it's looking like he's absolutely spent, and Ali's continuing, continuing. To, to play these mind games with him in the fight as well. And every time he gets to the ropes and they end up in a clinch, he starts to say things to him, which is that you think to yourself, you're hitting this guy with everything you've got in your arsenal, and yet he's he can't help himself, but he's got something <laughs> he wants to say to you. So what what would happen is obviously he'd, he'd lean all his weight into to George Foreman, and George Foreman would, would try to use all his energy to keep Ali as close as he possibly can to throw them body shots into him, but he's, he's getting even more exhausted. And it's funny because when they were in a clinch at one point, Ali was supposedly telling George Foreman, and this is what George Foreman said, obviously his account of that night, was they told me you could punch George, and they told me you could punch as hard as Joe Lewis. <laughs> it's just, he, he's an absolute nightmare, isn't he? Oh, God, could you imagine? And he said, I mean, in the seventh, but this is again according to George Foreman, so going into that seventh round, he actually said, he said, I thought he was just one more knockout victim until the seventh round. He said, I hit him hard to the jaw and he held me and he whispered in my ear, that all you got, George. <laughs> and he realised that this ain't what he thought it was. <laughs> I think he sort of resigned himself in that seventh round that no matter what he throws at Ali, he's just not going to go away. He's just going to keep staying there. And he's going to keep taunting him and he's going to keep leaning on him. He's going to keep just with a rope of dope. And George just didn't have another plan. He, there's nothing he could do. And as George said, that was the point when he realised, this is it. This is just, I'm just this isn't how I thought it was going to pan out. So we move into the eighth and the final round of the fight. And obviously, as it drew into that final round, Foreman's punching and defence have become pretty ineffective. And it's a strain of throwing all them shots throughout the previous seven rounds. And there was a lot of wild shots that he threw and a lot of shots that were missed as well. And although he was sort of pummeling to the body, there were shots that he were missing because he was so exhausted. So you, can, you can't even imagine how the guy was feeling at this point, having expended so much energy. So this is the point where the rope dope tactic comes into effect. He's basically been absorbing all these shots, letting George 
expend all his energy throughout the previous seven rounds. And, and obviously, Ali's just taking it. He's seemingly taking it. But then, obviously, in that eighth round, it seemed like he's sprung to life out of nowhere. And as soon as Foreman tried to throw the shots in, and you could see the physical exhaustion was just completely overtaking him at this point, Ali pounces on him and tries to he tries to get to him. And he lands several right hooks over Foreman's jab followed by a five-punch combination culminating in what a left hook that brought Foreman's head up into position and then a hard straight right to the face that caused Foreman to stumble to the canvas. And you just see this final combination that ended the fight and you can see a lot of it was just pure physical exhaustion from George Foreman. I think... Ali trying to do that in the rounds prior to, to the 8th round, if you wouldn't have worn him down as much as he did, you probably wouldn't have got the same result. And that's what's, that's what's the beauty of the rope-a-dope tactic. Obviously, people at the time watching the fight were thinking, Ali's getting killed here, you know, he's getting destroyed. But in fact, he's absorbing everything that George has got. He's making him so tired that anything he throws is completely ineffective. And he uses all that energy that he's still got in the tank, Ali, and he comes out and throws some really hard, vicious shots, which culminates in George Foreman being that exhausted that he can't even get up. And as George Foreman's trying his hardest to rise, the referee waves it off. He's, he's absolutely knackered. You can see at this point, he's absolutely spent, absolutely done. Very even fight. Ali, a sneaky right hand. Another sneaky right hand. Now it was interesting because at the time of the stoppage. Ali actually led on all three scorecards by 68-66, 70-67 and 69-66. That is ridiculous really, isn't it? I mean, I know some of the shots were landing to the arms, but he was hitting several shots to the body and I, I, the only round I could give Ali was the first round. Other than that, I don't think I could give him a single round. I thought former won every single round up until that point, although he was clearly tired and deteriorating as the fight wore on. But... That is a crazy scoreline. Yeah. It just shows you if this did go the distance, I mean, that would have been an absolute robbery if Ali got it, wouldn't it? Again, just going back to the finish as well, when he actually landed that, that right hand um, onto Foreman's head when he went down to the canvas, there is a moment where you sort of see Ali hesitate to throw the next shot and then Foreman drops to the floor and, and Ali did actually come out and say that he thought about throwing the ne- an extra punch just to put Foreman down. But he later said that I didn't throw that punch because I just thought it looked so beautiful the way he fell to the floor. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, again, I mean, the games the guy played with with Foreman, I mean, the games he played with many of his opponents, but just even towards the end, it's just just a brilliant way of of ending it. And and okay, I mean, Foreman does come out and say that he he blamed the ropes. If the ropes were slack, he could play that. He could use the the rope of dope. If, If they were a little bit more tight, he wouldn't have been able to do it. Because uh, you sort of lean back out of the ring at times, really, uh, Ali. And I could sort of get what he's saying with that. But, you know, end of the day, he walked into the plan. Uh, and the other thing that he said was the fact that he felt that it was a, it was a quick count. He felt that it, it is a bit quick. And he does stand up. And he is up on 10. And the referee, for me, I think he was right to signal that fight. 
over because he was he was exhausted. If that, he had let that fight carry on, Ali would have finished him off. There's no doubt about it. There's nothing our Foreman could have done. So I think he was a little bit bitter after the fight. But um, yeah, crazy scorecards. But what a magnificent result. And just the other thing as well, which was even more just it just it's almost like it was it was like a godlike. Is literally as soon as the bell went, they had this mad thunderstorm, and this is just. This huge rain downpour just come flooding into the stadium, literally the end of the fire. And you just think, it's like the gods have opened. It's just, it's just iconic, really. The whole thing is just like, <laughs> Ali, the next king of the world type of thing. It was just, it was marvellous. I mean, the end and just how the fight went, it's just, it's pinnacle of, of Ali's career for me. and just outstanding, outstanding performance. Mohammed, you told me in Deer Lake you were the greatest of all time. And I think everybody out there watching now will say that you've proved it to me. Who was bearing me up, too powerful, too strong. I proved that Allah is God. Elijah Muhammad is a messenger. And I have faith in them. And regardless of the world and the pressure, I made it an easy night. Because Allah has power over all things. If you believe in him, nothing, even George Foreman, will look like a baby. Everybody stop talking now. Attention. I told you, all of my critics, I told you all that I was the greatest of all time. Wanna be Sunday listen? I told you today I'm still the greatest of all time. Never again defeat me. Never again say that I'm gonna be defeated. Never again make me the underdog until I'm about 50 years old. Right. Then you might get me. But I didn't dance. I didn't dance for a reason. I wanted to make him lose all his power. I kept telling him he had no punch. He couldn't hit. He's swinging like a sissy. He's missing. Let me see your box. I hadn't started dancing yet. You can't say my legs are gone. You can't say I was tired because what happened? I didn't dance from the second round on. I stayed on the ropes. When I stay on the ropes, you think I'm doing bad. But I want all boxers to put this in the page of boxers. Staying on the ropes is a beautiful thing with a heavyweight when you make him shoot his best shots and you know he's not hitting you. I would have gave George Solomon two rounds instead of punching because after that he was mad. But he was falling, he was missing. I don't know if I'm going to fight again or not. Tell me, what did you say to George Foreman before the fight? What did you say? I told him he has no power uh, in the corners and in the clinches. I said, shoot your best shot. I'm going back to the ropes. They told me he was strong. Didn't, this, didn't I look stronger than him? Why, why didn't... Tell me, Mohammed. This is the thing that puzzled people. Why was it when you were on the ropes that he could not hurt you, even when you were right there on the ropes? Blocking. And I was pulling back, and I have a radar built inside me. I know how to judge punches. Didn't I tell all of you out there on your local radio shows, mostly black stations? I told you, I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. So that's what happened. That's what you said to me. But tell me now, are you really going to retire? I'm seriously thinking about retiring. There's nothing else for me to fight. I told her, well, I'm going to retire. I'm going to hold the title for a few months. I don't. They took my title unjustly. I told you, I'm the real champion. I told you, I'm the champion of the world. All of you bow. All of my critics crawl. All of you suckers who write the ring magazine. Boxing those there. All of you suckers bow because the stage was set. You made him great. You made him a bad Joe Lewis. You made him a hard puncher. But I want everybody from this moment on to recognize me as the scholar of boxing. If you want to know any damn thing about boxing, don't go to no boxing experts in Las Vegas. Don't go to no Jimmy the Greek. Come to Muhammad Ali. I am the man. So let's just move in briefly into the aftermath uh, of this. And I think we'll really focus more on George Foreman because 
obviously for Muhammad Ali, we know we know his story. We know he carried on. We've even done one of the fights for the Legendary Night series in the aftermath of this. We've done the thriller in Manila against Joe Frazier. So if you want to go and check that out, check that out. That's already in the feed. Check out the thriller in Manila episode. But I think I wanted to to go a bit more into George's aftermath, really, because obviously, as you said, he was quite bitter about this. There was a lot of things coming out of here, excuses or what he could only fathom in his own mind, but nobody really knew that. He actually ended up going and having a full mental and physical breakdown in the changing room after the fight, and it changed him. It changed him as a person. It really, really did change him as a person. He felt like you look at the interviews of him in this day and age now, and when he talks about it, what it was like for him then you can see how much he is at peace in, in this day and age but at that point in time he's he's just you could see he's just such a lost soul and he ended up going on to have this sort of spiritual enlightenment and at the same time he was actually rushed to hospital after the fight and he was claiming at the time that his hands bore stigmata and that Christ had come, al- come alive in him. So he was just, he was a little bit delirious, basically. He was that exhausted that something was going on which which wasn't actually happening. And those around him obviously mistook this for, for mental illness. So it came as a, a massive surprise when he did eventually hang up his gloves. So after this particular fight, he would go on to fight for a further three years in his career. He actually beat Joe Frazier in 1976 for the NABF title, stopping Joe Frazier again. But then he ended his first part of his career by losing to Jimmy Young in 1977 and he retired and he didn't come back for another 10 years and obviously what he what he did in, in 1994 would, would forever live in, in the history books but it was just crazy to see how much of an effect this particular fight had on him. The whole build-up, the whole charade around the build-up, the whole the villain, everything that he had to endure mentally throughout the course of the build-up and the fight itself and even them little jibes we were talking about in the in the middle of the fight when Ali's saying, is that all you've got, George? You know, you can't really imagine what, what that affected him mentally as and, and looking back on it, actually, I, I feel for him. I do feel for him that that part of his life was such a, such a difficult one. That loss was huge, not just for him in the ring, but for his life outside the ring as well. Oh, absolutely. And he did have it. I mean, the other story is that he actually got naked and run around in the dressing room as well, <laughs> saying all this crazy stuff about stigma on his hands. And, and, and he's just, he literally had a, a mad mental episode in the change room after the fight. And I think he was probably due to just sheer exhaustion. I mean, I, I'm, I'm doubting that there would have been probably any doctors present to have actually assessed him after that fight. I think, uh, he was literally in disarray, absolutely just in complete disarray. And even the image of him walking back to the to the dressing room after the fight, and obviously Ali's in the ring with all his entourage and everyone's in the ring. And it's just like he's nothing. You know, he just walks back as just this empty man. And he was obviously, it clearly affected him. And, but credit to say, he, he came back. He came back in the 80s and then obviously winning that world title in 94 was against Michael Moore by knockout was was brilliant. I mean, he actually did he win that world title in the same shorts as well that he wore for this fight, or he came back. He was even out of when he returned. He wore the same the same shorts he wore, which is just credit to him, really, isn't it? I mean, to come back at at what was he? He was uh, forty five years old. I think he's still the oldest heavyweight champion as well at forty five, isn't he? Um, so George Foreman. I mean, it, and he is at peace. I mean, we all know the Foreman, the, the George Foreman Grill as well. Obviously, he had quite a bit of money out of that. 
I believe Hulk Hogan was meant to get that deal and he ended up something else. It was like Hulk Hogan saying which, which fell flat on his face. So <laughs> George Foreman got, got the money from that. But there was the only one other thing as well that I've got down here is Muhammad Ali after the fight. He sort of stood by the, the river quietly to himself. And, and a few people have said it and the press was sort of standing by. And even one of the Associated Press, I'm not quite sure it was, but he said... He sort of see Ali standing glazing over at the river and he sort of thought like, well, I wonder what he's thinking. He actually turns around to him and he says, fellas, you'll never know how much that meant to me. Before he jumped over the rain to walk the water. That's <laughs> basically <laughs> what Larry and Ali did. Because <laughs> he was just an absolute, he was like a god, man. Jesus Christ, the shit that happened on that, in this whole journey, it's just like it, the gods aligned from Hamid Ali that, that, that whole time he was in Zaire. And yeah, I mean, it's just everything about that. This fight is just, it's just magnificent. Obviously with Don King as well. Cool, I mean, I always slag off Don King, but that guy's got some bollocks to be dealing, to dealing with uh, Mabuto, <laughs> that's for sure. Oh, I'm telling you. So let's just look at how <laughs> significant this fight was in terms of in numbers and obviously viewership and the revenue it generated. So the fight was obviously broadcast live, pay-per-view on closed-circuit television, also known as Theatre Television, to venues across the world. Now, the fight had a record estimated 50 million viewers on closed circuit television worldwide grossing an estimated 100 million dollars if you look at look at what that is in terms of inflation in into sort of 2020 you're probably looking at 520 million dollars in revenue just from just from the pay-per-view on closed circuit television alone so in the United States, the fight had an estimated 3 million closed-circuit viewers in 400 venues, with tickets which were sold at $20, which in today's age would be about $100, which grossed $60 million. Again, we're looking at the comparisons, if this would have been in this day and age, you're looking at $310 million just for the closed-circuit viewers in, in the 400 venues across the USA. So the promoters and fighters received over half of the U.S. closed-circuit revenue, generating an income of at least $30 million for the promoters and the fighters. Ali and Foreman were paid $5 million each. So in total, including the closed-circuit television and free television, the fight was watched by a record estimated television audience of 1 billion viewers worldwide, and that's about a quarter of the world's population at the time in 1974, which was estimated to be around 4 billion people living on the planet. It was also the world's most watched live television broadcast at the time. This included a large television audience in, in our native country, in the United Kingdom, where the fight was watched by 26 million viewers on BBC One, which is nearly half of UK's 56 million people at the time in 1974. So them figures and them that amount of money made from that fight just goes to show you the magnitude of how big this fight really was. Ah. Oh unbelievable amounts of money and and with the inflation the adjustments and the inflation it just shows you just how much i mean if this was in today's world this would be mammoth i mean we're talking we're talking and joshua tyson fury quite simply because that's the sort of figures not quite sure it quite get there worldwide but definitely in the uk but um ah oh, incredible and the fact that arnie form will get their five million dollars which is a hell of a lot of money i believe it was the equivalent of 30 million today so that would have been 30 million dollars each that's incredible really so yeah 30 million each so then you got the gross which is what 30, which was 30 million at the time so <laughs> Don King's laughing I mean <laughs> he pulled off an absolute master plan I can't, you can't knock the fella I mean the fact that he bumped so many fighters he was an absolute it was immoral in every way he was an, it was an horrible bastard but yet 
he made himself millions from this one fight. And considering the break, he kept himself talking. He was just, he was, he was a great talker. I mean, that was one thing he said when he was in prison, when he was sitting in his prison cell. He read loads of books, loads of Shakespeare. Come up with some fantastic quotes. And you see him when you're watching it, the uh, We Were Kids documentary, talking to the Associated Press, and they're just writing everything he's put, he's saying because he's just, he just, he just his tone. A bit like Harley, where he's just coming out of so much shit. And um, it kept people engrossed and in, interested in the fight for an extra month. So, I mean, I've, for the fact that we're going to credit Muhammad Ali, I have to credit Don King for making <laughs> for, for, for making so much money. I, I've never thought I'd ever say that, but the more I've looked into this, the more I have to think that, cool, mate, you've got balls of steel. So sort of credit to him for that. But what an amazing, amazing night. I mean, thank God it was never called from the slave ship to the championship, which Don <laughs> King actually came out with. Because, cool, fuck me, I think that is where he would have definitely gone wrong. But the guy that pulled out the rumble in the jungle out of his ass, I think you, you're an absolute legend. So, but what a great, great legendary night. Brilliant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've really, really thoroughly enjoyed going back through this one. And it's just, you know, these documentaries and the source material that we, we get for the podcast is just, it's unbelievable. When you first read over it and you think to yourself, bloody hell, you know, I never knew this or I never knew that. And there's so much information that you can source from the internet and, and books as well. And, you know, so much material comes from books as well. So it's it's so good to be able to look into what was such a, an amazing event, really. When you put it into perspective, it is an amazing event. It's a one-off event. It's, it's an event that's not really been replicated ever since. And I honestly don't know if we'd ever see it. I mean, you're talking about the potential mega match between Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua. Yeah, that's a mega match for us as British fight fans, but would it captivate the world as much as this did? I honestly don't know if it would, and I think this yeah. is this is one of a one of a kind type of fight. It's a fight that you know, if you lived through that particular era watching that fight, you were lucky really because you got to be able to witness one of the most amazing boxing events in in history. And for guys like us who are picking it up 20, 30 years down the line after it's happened, you know, as young lads getting into boxing and the love of boxing, it's it's amazing to be able to really look back on, on the intricate details about a particular fight and a build-up to it. So, obviously, as you listeners now have, have enjoyed this particular episode, I'm sure you have. I'm sure you've you've got plenty of things you want to speak about with this episode. I'm sure we've took you down the rabbit hole a little bit for this one, and there's plenty of documentaries and plenty of books out there that you can go and read, and we certainly recommend going doing that because it's really enjoyable to do it, to get the real-life stories of what happened in the build-up to this fight, the fight itself and the aftermath, and we've enjoyed sitting down to cover it. So, as always then, please go and let us know what you think about it on Twitter at Legend Night Pod and subscribe to the podcast as well. You can do that by checking us out on all available podcasting apps, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name them, we're there. Go and subscribe to us if you don't subscribe already. And please, if you are an Apple Podcast user, go and give us a rating and review. We really appreciate all the support everybody has given us for the Legendary Nights podcast. And we really hope you've enjoyed this episode, the tale of Foreman versus Ali. This was the Rumble in the Jungle. And right now, Thomas Hearns is an open book for Ray Leonard. Backs up against the ropes. This is one of the most unusual calls by a referee in the history of the sport. The first loss. A tremendous victory. Leonard fighting off the ropes. It happened. It happened. Number cut by Douglas. Down goes Tyson. Hooks it. Right hand shot.
Social Podcast Network.